All right. I wondered why it wasn't too loud. <laughs> Can you hear me now? All right. Yeah, his grandmother played, they called him Papa Seymour. And she was just in the middle of a story, you know. I, got, I sat down at the table, she was telling stories. She says, yeah, I remember Grandma, whatever her name was, uh, playing piano with Papa Seymour. And I says, who? I said, wait a minute. Who? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. She was the piano player at Azusa Street. I'm like, what? <laughs> and the Azusa Street, for those of you who don't know, is where revival broke out in 1904. And every Pentecostal, charismatic church, every Assembly of God church, everybody that speaks in tongues on planet Earth today uh, has been influenced by that one church. You know, and what God did beginning there and throughout all the world. Of course, it's spread all over. It's the Holy Spirit. Uh, <clears throat> the pastor, William Seymour, was a black man who preached the message that uh, when someone received the Holy Spirit, they were enabled to speak with uh, new uh, tongues, a spiritual language, and just a revival broke out. <clears throat> and then uh, his mother was personal friends with Amy Semple McPherson, who led one of the greatest revivals in the, in the 20th century and founded the Foursquare Gospel and uh, denomination. <clears throat> And so they're just connected uh, with revival all the way through. For the last 60 years, they ministered and, and directly connected. And it's just exciting to be part of that lineage uh, 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 spiritually. So, uh, um, and, and, and Walt's main message was, was that faith is action. Faith is action. He's been preaching it for years. And that's what this passage was about. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 21 through 26, we'll read it. It says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Everybody say, justified by works. <laughs> when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works. Repeated twice. And not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also, so we want to look at this scripture and and talk about it a little bit in the, as an example. James is giving an example to prove his point that he made earlier, and that we emphasized in the last couple of weeks that faith cannot be separated. If you separated your behavior, if you separate your behavior, okay, and instead of works, put the word behavior, okay. Let's get out, everybody. Please, let's stop being religious. Okay, and, and separate the idea of works. What 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 he's really talking about is our behavior, and so our behavior and our faith must align. And in fact, they're really the same thing when you get right down to it. And that uh, if our faith is not <coughs> demonstrated by godly behavior, then the faith is dead. And he brings out this example of Abraham, and he says, "Was not Abraham justified by works?" Well, that's kind of an interesting statement because actually, for those of you who may know a little church history, have you heard of Martin Luther? 
What did he preach? Justification by faith. In fact, he was so into the message of justification by faith, he adamantly argued, and if you ever read his books, you'd wonder if he was a Christian. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it was like, he was outrageous. He argued. <laughs> Tori knows what I mean. <laughs> he actually thought James should be ripped out of the Bible. The book of James. Because he thought it was nonsense. But I... And the rest of Christianity says, wait a minute, Luther. There's a balance here. And James is speaking to that. That there is a balance. And, and, and God decided sovereignly that this is part of Scripture. And this I want to, I want to point out for those of us who have been raised in the church and, and, and heard the message that we're justified by faith and not by works. That's a true statement. But James is also true that faith without works is dead. And we must understand that we cannot uh, have a, 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 a fracture between our, what we believe and how we behave. That when our lives become fractured in that way, it leads to death. Let me read a commentary on this from an old guy. His name is Al Barnes. And he lived in the, he was born in 1798, lived 1870. So in the early 18, mid-1800s, he was a commentator, a Bible scholar, and he writes, concerning this uh, statement, justified by works. <clears throat> it's a little long, so please pay attention. It says, that is, in the sense, justified by works, that is, in the sense in which James is maintaining that a man, or a person, uh, professing religion is to be justified by his or her works. He does not affirm, James does not affirm, that the ground of acceptance with God is that we keep the law or are perfect. That's not what he's saying. Or that our good works makes an atonement for us. Right? It doesn't atone for our sins. And that it is on their account, the account of good works, that we are pardoned. He's not saying that. Nor does he deny it is necessary that a man uh, should believe in order to be saved. He's not saying that. <clears throat> and then, in this sense, he does not deny that men are justified by faith. And thus, he does not contradict the doctrine of the Apostle Paul. But, he does teach, this is what he does say, that where there are no good works, or where there is not a holy life, there is no true religion. And that faith, which is not productive of good works, is of no value. A man is justified by his works, that is, they are the evidence that he is a justified man. Everybody say evidence. 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 The point on which the apostle has his eye is the nature of saving faith. What is it really? What is faith really all about? What is the nature of saving faith? And James is trying to explain this. And his design is to show that a mere faith, which would produce no more effect than that of the demons did, could not save. Because earlier in this chapter, he says the demons believed that Jesus was God. The de demons believe in God, but they're not saved. And so faith that doesn't produce anything more than what a demon has 
That's not, that doesn't have the power to save. Does that make sense? Somebody say amen. amen. Come on. In this, he states no doctrine which contradicts that of Paul or the rest of the New Testament that emphasizes salvation by faith or relationship with Jesus. Because it's relationship, it's a faith, that faith is essential. That relationship of trust is essential for the atonement of sins, for the paying of the penalty, all the things that works can't do. We have to understand that those, that faith must, must lead to an action. It must lead to behavior that demonstrate the work that's accomplished through relationship with Christ. So to the evidence to which he appeals in regard to faith is good works and a holy life. And where that exists, it shows that the faith is genuine. The case of Abraham is one directly in point. He showed that he had the kind of faith which was not dead. He gave the most affecting evidence that his faith was of such a kind as to lead him to implicit behavior. Implicit obedience. Implicit obedience. What does the word implicit mean? Not explicit. Implicit. Take a guess. Look it up on your Google phone. Your Blackberry. What does the word implicit mean? Does anyone know what the word implicit Diane? Unquestioning. It's, it's kind of like implied. It's from the same word. It's like inherent. Implicit obedience. In other words, when I tell my son to take out the garbage, I expect implicit obedience. Do you think I get it? <laughs> I'm like, how many times do I got to tell the kid the same thing? All right? It's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, if you take something into the car, when you get out of the car, take it out of the car. Simple. All right? Never happens. That is an example of not implicit obedience. Implicit obedience is you say it once and they do it from then on. All right? <clears throat> God, give our children implicit. I just heard God said, give me implicit obedience, and then you'll get it from your children. Okay, so there you go. His faith, Abraham's faith, <clears throat> Abraham's faith was of such a kind as to lead him to implicit obedience. Whatever God said, Abraham did. Period. And to painful sacrifice. Ooh. Such an act as that referred to, the act of offering up his son, demonstrated, if anything could, that his faith was genuine and that his religion was deep and pure. The act here referred to, this is interesting, the act of offering up Isaac on the altar and if you're not familiar with the story, you need to read your Bible. Okay? It's all there in Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, we give them away for free. <clears throat> read the book of Genesis. Very interesting. It's part of the story. But the act referred uh, in James of Abraham offering his son on the altar uh, actually occurred long subsequent 
In other words, a long time after the declaration by God that Abraham was righteous by faith. Okay? It says, and was thus a fulfillment or confirmation. I'll talk about that in a second here. Let me finish the Barnes sentence here. It says, and was thus a fulfillment or confirmation of the declaration of Scripture, in which he says he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, the act of offering up Isaac was done many, many years after God said that Abraham was righteous because he believed. And Barnes says that it showed that his faith was not merely speculative, but was an active principle leading to holy living. Faith is an action. Sound familiar? That's what Albert Barnes wrote back in the early 1800s. Abraham <coughs> encountered God uh, and, was, and did many different things. He, he left the land he grew up in and went to another land because God told him to. Alright? And God had made him a promise that he would have uh, a son and that through his lineage the whole world would be blessed. But he was, what, a hundred years old, and he still didn't have any kids. And Abraham said, and this is in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2 through 6. This is where God first says that Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. His servant was the only one that was going to inherit all of his stuff. He didn't have a son. Then Abraham said, look. You have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. In other words, God spoke to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to number them. And God said to Abraham, So shall your descendants be. And that's when Abraham believed. It says, and he believed in the Lord. And God accounted it to him for righteousness. Alright? It was at that moment. And the only thing that Abraham had to go on was God's Word. And he believed. And at that moment, God said, that's the kind of faith that makes a person righteous. That's the kind of relationship that when I say something, they believe it. They take it. Sister Berger was... I don't want to take up too much time, but it's a great example. (coughs) Walt Berger, many of you may know it, when he was a young man, was... uh, taking off in his preaching ministry and leading crusades and kind of a big-time revivalist. <clears throat> Glory to God. <laughs> he got hit by a train. you know, And I think both he and the train was going about 70 miles an hour. <laughs> Different angles. And, uh, and they gave him up for dead. Literally. Uh, and they gave him no chance to live. Uh, and uh, he, he was in the hospital. Darlene just had their third baby only two weeks ago. And, and the doctors were saying, even if he lived, which is almost impossible, he'll never walk, he'll never talk. <coughs> and she was just distraught. 
<clears throat> and one of the preachers that he was working with at the time, um, a particular gentleman that Darlene didn't have a high amount of respect for. <laughs> I'll let her tell the story. <laughs> but he came in. He was one of the old-time faith preachers. You know, and he prayed for Walt. <clears throat> and he turned around and he said, Sister Darlene, your husband will live. And she said, it just came in me. It was amazing to hear the story. Happened, what, 30 years ago or whatever. She, uh, when she said it, she, even there at the table, she said, when he said it, the words came into me. And I believed it. And from that moment on, I didn't have any doubt. That gave me that. This is him, him declaring it. She heard the word, and it wasn't a word of that man, that preacher. It was a word of God. You know why I know that? Because Walt lived. <clears throat> and he lived an additional many, many decades and served God that whole time. And, and Walt clung to that and uh, didn't believe the doctors when they said he'd never walk. He threw away the wheelchair and he walked and continued to minister to the Lord for many, many years. But it's that believing <clears throat> that changed the dynamic and that was accounted to him for righteousness that was long before the instance that James is referring to as a demonstration of that faith being real. And that it wasn't just a speculative faith. It was something that was put into action when God later told Abraham to take that son and offer him on an idol. Kill him. In obedience. And Abraham acted on that word as well. You know why? Because he was implicitly obedient to the word of the Lord. And it was in that act <clears throat> that that implicit obedience was demonstrated. It was, it was worked out. It was revealed that Abraham really, really, really believed it. To the point that he was willing to trust God when everything, all evidence, went against the promise that he heard. Uh, <clears throat> James's primary point is that Abraham's example is that faith was working together with his works, and works, and by works, faith was made perfect. By works. Faith was made complete. That's what the word means. It was accomplished or, or consummate. Okay? It was finished or fulfilled or made whole. The work that James was speaking of, offering Isaac on the altar, was the demonstration of the faith that Abraham had walked in for many, many, many years. His point is that without that demonstration... <clears throat> the faith would have been of no more value than the faith that demons have. Alright? Are you following along here? What was Abraham called to offer up? Hello? His son. Not only just his son, but the promise the only way that God's promise that he had based his entire life on for many decades, the only possible way 
that even then came after many, many years of waiting, and now it's time to be fulfilled, and then God says, offer them up. What? Okay, I'll do it. He takes his son, and he loads up some wood, some servants, and they go hiking out into the mountains, and go up to the mountain of God. And he builds an altar, and his son says, where's the, where's the lamb? <laughs> so I'm looking at him. <laughs> Come here, son. I'd love to hear the story from Isaac's perspective. You know, my dad went crazy. <laughs> we don't know that. We'll, we'll hear that at some point. <clears throat> you may not be called to offer up your son. Romans 12, verse 1. <clears throat> Same is true in our lives. It was true in Abraham's. That our faith that's not demonstrated by implicit obedience is not real faith. It has no more value than the faith of demons. Alright? We're not called to offer up our children in that sense. But you're called to offer up something. Are you hearing me? Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove, that you may what? Prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know why many people struggle with doubts in their faith? Because they don't have the proof. And they don't have the proof Because they haven't had their minds transformed and they haven't presented their bodies as a living sacrifice. They're waiting for proof before they offer themselves up. The Bible says, present yourself. Abraham didn't say, wait a minute God, I'll go to this other land if you prove it. It'll work out. Wait a minute, God. I'll offer up Isaac if you prove it. You know what proof he had? The promise. His relationship with God. Because he knew the God that told him what to do. Alright? The obedience was based on the relationship that he knew who was telling him. I tell my kids something. Do this. I can't do it. If you couldn't do it, I wouldn't tell you to do it. I know, I know their capabilities. Alright? And God knows your capabilities. Better than you do. Okay? He knows what you're capable of. And when He tells you to do something, there needs to be implicit obedience. Because that's a demonstration of real faith. We need to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. I was thinking about this whole dynamic that happened with Abraham. And I don't know if you know this, but offering up children as a sacrifice wasn't unheard of. In fact, it was a common practice amongst many of the tribal religions in Abraham's day and throughout the history of, of Israel. In the Old Testament, Moloch, uh, I, I read, once read a description of 
of the sound of the camp that they would go and they'd have these uh, 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 ceremonies where they would throw their children into the fire as an act of worship to a demon god. And it was a description from written in the past. It's not in the Bible, but it's another uh, uh, historical text that describes this act. And it's horrible. It's just, it's just written as the, the, the sound of it. It was this horror of these people that get into a, a, a frenzy and would literally throw their children into the fire. And I thought, <clears throat> you know, it's kind of interesting that God called Abraham to do something that was similar to the nations that he lived in, but significantly different. He needed to have the same level of obedience demonstrated that the heathens demonstrated to their demon gods or their idols, their false god. But at the last moment, God says, your, your obedience is demonstrated. Your faith is real. Don't kill your son. That's not the kind of God I am. Don't you see how, how much that screams the difference between our God, Yahweh, the Father, and the gods of the world? No, 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 no. That's your precious Son. I will provide the sacrifice. I'll take the payment. I'll take the pain. Romans says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. How do you demonstrate your faith? What your body does. And that's what you'll give account for in front of the judgment throne of God in the end. Now, The reason I'm saying this is not to scare you. (laughs) Although you ought to be scared. But it's to encourage you because you still have opportunity. That it's what your body does. I was thinking another thought that came to mind. You know, when we go to Japan and we go to Shinto shrines, it's at the shrine where the Shinto people, they, they... they worship. Or in the Buddhist temples, they go and worship there. And <clears throat> most Japanese will actually have a little shrine in their house so that they can worship at this, in this little place, a temple. Hindus do it as well. They go to the temple to worship. In Islam, they go to the mosque to worship. Right? But Christianity is significantly different. Because where do you go to worship in Christianity? Your body. Where is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Huh? Your body. It says that in Corinthians. Your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Alright? You are like God's mobile unit. (laughs) God's RV. (laughs) <laughs> which is amazing. 
God is in you. You worship God by the acts of your body. Alright? What your body does and your mind, as your mind is transformed. So, what you do in your body is Christian worship. And there's been a, there's been a, a de-emphasis or a neglect over the last several hundred years in uh, evangelical Christianity about the emphasis of the importance of worshiping with our bodies. Listen to Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis and one of the uh, demon <coughs> characters in it points out that humans always forget how significant their physical actions are in relationship to the expression of their faith. You know? And so the act of bowing down that the demon was saying, don't, don't, you know, make the, make the main character of the book, uh, um, <clears throat> disconnect religious thought with religious action. Christian thought with Christian action. And if you can, if, if the enemy can make that disconnect, that it's just an idea, that bowing down doesn't really have significance spiritually, then the enemy's won a little point. Because if the bowing down doesn't have significance spiritually, then using your body in an illicit or sinful way, well, that doesn't really matter because it's just my body. No, it matters! Because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a holy thing. It's a wonderful thing. Not because of who you are, but because of who's in you. Does that make sense? And so you honor your body and you worship. And just as Abraham was called to offer up his son on the altar, and that was a demonstration of faith, you're called to offer up your body. 24-7, guys. Everywhere, all the time. Abraham's faith, when it was put into action, changed the course of human history. Abraham never wrote a book. Abraham, as far as we know, never preached a sermon. Abraham may have been illiterate. We don't know. But his faith in action changed the course of human history. Do you realize there's three primary religions? Monotheism. Prior to Abraham, there's no example in world history of, of the idea that there's one God. So Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all trace their roots to this guy called Abraham. Think of it. All of human history that's based on Christianity, everyone that's been a Christian or even a, a Muslim or a Jewish leaders, all the influence that's affected the world was because one man did what God told him to do. Alright? I've always thought, man, I can't wait to meet Abraham. When I get to heaven, that's the first guy I want to meet because like, he must be some dude. <laughs> And I prayed about this a couple of years ago, and God says, you know, he's, he's nothing special. He's just someone who did what I told him to do. Because I'm not a respecter of persons. That's one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament, is that God doesn't play favorites. Alright? That means if you do what God tells you to do, you can have the same measure of influence 
You might not see it because you won't live hundreds of years after and maybe have a book written about you. Abraham's book was written as an example to fulfill other prophecies. But you have influence. You can change your life. You can change the lives of those in your, your, your family, your circle of influence. But who knows what effect you can have if you simply do what God tells you to do, faith and action. Amen. Bill's going to have some announcements. <laughs>